hello, and welcome to this episode of the Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. Today I speak with Jeff Bond, who has written the companion book to the show The Orville. The book is called The World of the Orville, and we talk about uh, the production of, of the show, uh, the writing, costume special effects, the music, um, everything that went into uh, creating the show. So thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Jeff Bond, author of The World of the Orville. Thank you for speaking with me. Uh, it's my pleasure. So first, tell me, how did you get into um, writing a book like this? How did you get into the subject? Well, uh, it's actually was uh, something that was uh, assigned to me. I had written uh, or worked on several books for Titan Publishing, uh, one about uh, the Planet of the Apes film series, um, and another one about uh, uh, art of the uh, Star Trek films, the J.J. The Abrams produced Star Trek films from, you know, the 2009 version onward, mm-hmm. and I just finished uh, working on that. It's called uh, Star Trek, The Art of the Kelvin Timeline. Uh, I finished working on that, and Titan asked me if I'd be interested in uh, working on a book about the Orville series, and this was something that I had just learned about. And was, you know, had been in production for several months and was about, uh, to go on the air. So when I actually started the project, they were filming their last few episodes. Uh, so I, I live in Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley and, uh, I've, in my capacity as a magazine writer and editor, I've been to visit the, various studios around town uh, a number of times. Uh, so I, I had been to 20th Century Fox before. That's where they shoot the Orville. So I was able to go there for a few days and, and talk to a lot of the people who were actually working on the production and take a look at the sets. Um, and uh, that was how I worked on the book. So I assume that uh, you, you've been a sci-fi or, or a, a fan genre f- entertainment fan for, for a while? Yes, uh, probably since I was at least, um, I'd say as a kid, you know, most of the, you know, even the cartoons that I was watching uh, when I was a kid, kids watched cartoons uh, instead of playing video games. Mm -hmm. Uh, And most of the cartoons I was watching at the time were really kind of sci-fi oriented things a lot of the Hanna-Barbera kind of action shows or things like Johnny Quest you know uh, were very science fiction oriented and then I was watching things like Lost in Space and Star Trek uh, so I've, I've watched these things for many years and I was very, very interested in the Orville uh when it was going to go on the air, I knew that Seth MacFarlane was a fan of Star Trek, mm-hmm. and I, I was pretty aware that there was going to be a, a, a kind of a, a element of um, something like doing Star Trek in, in terms of making the Orville. There's, there's, it's, it's somewhat of a reflection on Star Trek, and I think when uh, when I was going over the original publicity materials and discussing the book um you know one of the things that the, the some of the people who were working on the show were talking about was the fact that that star trek had sort of uh, been so pervasive for so many years that it had sort of become its own genre mm-hmm. so you could basically have a a show with the a lot of the elements that people would associate with Star Trek, like a starship and people in uniforms and with ranks, uh, but that it wouldn't necessarily be Star Trek. And I, I don't know that your program, I, I'm assuming, is not an official outgrowth of, of the show, that you do this as a fan. Right. I, I, there's, I, there's obviously, um, I think, a certain amount of sensitivity uh, to... Um, you know how this show is labeled. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the interesting thing is it's it has I think a huge uh, fan component of people who are fans of Star Trek and like the Orville because it is like Star Trek and and mm-hmm. uh, they see it as a sort of an alternate version 
of things that they are looking for in, in a Star Trek program that maybe they're not getting out of uh, new Star Trek. Um, so mm-hmm. there, I think there's always going to be a relationship mm-hmm. uh, between Star Trek and the Orville. I don't know whether that's something that, you know, the people making the Orville necessarily want to be, you know, something conscious and that's like always talked about in connection with the show, but it's Mm -hmm. certainly a connection. Well, when I first heard about um, the Orville coming out, I thought Galaxy Quest, you know, that was um, Mm -hmm. a show like that, sort of, you know. Yeah, that that's and that was brought up, uh, you know, in a lot of the dis- discussions I had. That um, you know, I think that's what people expected, and and the people working on the show uh, were not necessarily huge fans of Galaxy Quest, and that was not specifically not what they wanted to do with uh, with the Orville. Um, it's not really a satire or a takeoff of the genre. And I think that's what a lot of people expected. Mm -hmm. I think also people expected it to be an all out comedy and they did not expect that the plots uh, would be taken seriously and that there would actually be drama on the show. So, uh, you know, the, the, I think the series, um, it, it took some time for people to figure out what it was. I think, uh, you know, fans of Star Trek and fans of science fiction were already kind of all in to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, they were going to watch it anyway, but I think it wound up bringing in a larger audience than that, you know, because of the kind of unusual approach that it took. Do you think, and since you bring that up, since fans weren't sure what they were getting, do you think the creators also found, were, were they finding their footing as they filmed each episode you know did the did they change the writing mid filming you know i said well i'll tell you that uh i viewed the you know the pilot episode which was all that i was able to wa- watch initially when i first got started on the on the book and uh i sort of started writing um based on what I'd seen from the pilot and what the tone was from the pilot. And one of the producers, you know, after I kind of mentioned that during a phone call, he said, oh, no, wait, you need to see the next few episodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I had been kind of unsure about how I felt about the show based on the pilot. Mm -hmm. And the the pilot is it's a very challenging uh, thing you know, I think the pilot was the hardest thing that they had to do in terms of of doing this series was to set up this whole world and figure out what the tone was and how comedy was going to work mm-hmm. uh, and where comedy was and wasn't going to be in the show. And I, I think um, with the the pilot, you probably can see a little bit more work and exploration being done Mm -hmm. and then by the time i watched the second episode i felt like okay i get what they're doing and this this feels very right now and i can and i can see how they're balancing this uh i think the the characters you know they had to sort of set up what every character was in the pilot but they uh, didn't really have time to explore them all so you got a feeling for what they were. Mm-hmm. Um, by the second episode, I th- feel like they were very confident and they, all the actors, everybody kind of knew what they were playing and how to play everything. So I would say that, you know, if there was any change in the writing, maybe it happened between the pilot and, and the first filmed episode. And, and any television series, you're, you're always going to be feeling your way and making adjustments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm sure that there was some evolution over the course of the first season, but I, I do feel like they were pretty firm out of the gate, you know, in the, in, within their first regular filmed episode of what they were doing, you know, what the tone and approach of the show was going to be. Mm-hmm. I'd say, um, Personally, I found episode three to be the one where I, I thought, wow, this is, they're being serious about this. You know, they're really exploring, um, interesting subjects and, uh, you know, philosophy, you know, it's sort of the philosophy. That's not the right word. They, they really wanted to look at, um, various sides of, of really interesting issues. Yeah, that's, uh, something that came up, um, 
in you know my discussions with some of the producers and writers and and you know quotes i did not get to talk to seth mcfarlane um they were in, in the middle of you know doing the last few episodes and i had a pretty good notion uh just from my experience in doing these projects that i probably was not going to get a chance to talk to seth mcfarlane directly mm-hmm. uh just given the schedule uh but i think that um that's something that he said in, in, in interviews, uh, that he did with, with, uh, other people in the press at the time was that they were trying to do, uh, stories that were, um, I want to say it's, the word is not analogy, uh, but, um, the, the types of stories that they used to do on Star Trek and, and, and the Twilight Zone was another, uh, show that he specifically mentioned where you're doing a show that is sort of, you know, symbolizes something you want to talk about that you, that you're not talking about directly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's kind of like a parable, um, where you kind of learn something or you get a new perspective on an issue, uh, by the time the story is done. And that kind of storytelling, um, I think it, in a way has sort of fallen out of favor and it's harder to do with contemporary programming where you have, um, for one thing, you don't have as many standalone episodes, mm-hmm. and that's something that's unusual about the Orville is that every episode is self-contained. There's a, a little bit of continuity, and there's there are characters who show up, mm-hmm. you know, from earlier episodes, but it's not uh, there's not like one story arc for the season. Each episode stands on its own, so you could conceivably watch them in any order, and you're going to get. A, a standalone um, individual story out of every episode that you don't see so much in television anymore and specifically in science fiction to do each episode that focuses around a different sort of topic uh, or idea is unusual so i i think that um you know one of the kind of ingenious things about the orville is because it has these kind of visual callbacks to even sort of older star trek maybe the original star trek or star trek of the 80s mm-hmm. where you have this this super clean uh very very utopian futuristic look uh it allows you to address this kind of classic sort of storytelling that you might not be able to get away with and people might not accept if you're watching a gritty you know gritty looking show with a lot of shaking camera and uh overlapping dialogue and realism there's something about this uh that sets it up as a fantasy and i think you're able to do kind of more pure type of classical storytelling uh within that and i i think that was something intentional that they thought about in terms of creating the show mm-hmm. did you get um an idea from any of the other recurring characters or actors that they uh that they were doing something different than than what they expected uh i did i i was not uh, able to talk to any of the actors um i was able to go onto the set which was really uh thrilling and and uh probably the most exciting part of doing the book but they were actually you know filming most of the time when i was working on the book and i i think that uh you know i i think all the characters or actors you know did probably find it challenging initially but these are all very experienced people and i think they're all great at moving back and forth between uh drama and comedy Mm -hmm. and uh i think all of them uh for for one thing they're able to do kind of classic star trek acting uh when necessary uh and and the conceit of the show, I think, is to be able to shift back and forth between that and just how people would behave in real life. Mm-hmm. And that's what, uh, you know, I think that's what uh, gives the show kind of a hook for a larger audience. I, th- I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, Star Trek, and I hate to keep bringing it up, but it, it's it's such a, a kind of a, a touchstone mm-hmm. for this uh but star trek has always had a, a kind of a strong loyal audience but th- there's a certain amount of a limitation on it because 
it's tough to relate to um, Star Trek's characters in, in in some cases because they are very idealized and they're mm-hmm. kind of perfected versions of people. And what the Orville does is allow you to really see yourself uh, in in these characters and wh- how you might react in a situation uh, if you were on a spaceship. You know, you're not going to be uh, this rigid, you know, perfectly uh, perfect spoken human being at all points and you're not going to be perfectly uh, heroic uh, at all points. And uh, this show allows people to show, you know, awkwardness and nervousness, uh, fear uh, and and panic and, and reactions that people would really have if they were in this these kind of extreme situations. So I, I have to think that that's a blast for the actors because everyone can kind of imagine, oh, what would I really do, you know, if there was an alien spaceship firing weapons at mm. the, uh, the, you know, ship that I was in, you probably wouldn't sit there and grit your teeth and, and uh, just take orders. You might let out an obscenity or two or get, get upset. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a great, and I think all the, the actors are, are really good. And um, in particular, I really like, Adrian Palicki. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was uh, one of the things in watching the pilot that I wasn't sure that I really liked was kind of the relationship between um, the Seth MacFarlane character and, and uh, you know his ex-wife and the mm-hmm. idea of having his ex-wife on the bridge and they they sort of resolve it in the in the pilot and show you that she's going to be. A character that you respect and that, and who actually has a lot to teach, uh, the Seth MacFarlane character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it, for the initial setup, uh, it's really it, what you see is the fact that she has had an affair and that, uh, uh, the McFarlane character is kind of bitter and angry about that and he's very insulting. Mm-hmm. And you wonder if the show is just going to be, you know, Seth McFarlane insulting this attractive woman <laughs> in every episode. And I thought that that could have really been disastrous. But that they sort of, by the end of the pilot, you get the feeling that, this, you know, she's a very competent officer. Mm-hmm. And I really like the way that they wind up exploring uh, that character. And she's... Um, the the one thing that uh, I love about Adrienne Palicki, you know, she was going to play Wonder Woman in... Uh, uh, a, a pilot that, that uh, and and it did not turn out so well. Um, and I think a lot of people for a while kind of just knew her from that. And then she had a regular role uh, for a, a season or two on Agent Marvel's Agents of Shield, mm-hmm. and she played uh, a really tough uh, character um, who was a Shield agent. And she has a fantastic scene. In that show where she's being tortured, literally like having her, like her fingernails pulled off mm. by a villain. And, uh, th- that's another kind of a weird situation to put a female character in, you know, mm-hmm. to have them being tortured because it's very easy to show a f- woman as a victim. Mm-hmm. And she was able to play that. So you didn't see her as an, a victim and, and eventually she kind of turns the tables on the, the, the people who are, uh, torturing her and, and, you know, fights them. And it's one of the most exciting things I've ever seen. I was literally like, and I, I'm jaded. I've been watching television, you know, my whole life. So it takes a lot to get me actually excited. And I was, uh, so worked up because, uh, you know, you, she got across the fact that you know she's really suffering <laughs> incredible pain mm-hmm. and by the by the end of it you just are, are so on her side and you want her to get back at these people and so when they show her going after them it's incredibly exciting and mm-hmm. she you know th- uh, this sounds like a huge um diversion from what we're talking about but <laughs> she has a very similar scene in the orville mm-hmm. uh yeah. and she's uh I think she uh, uh, probably I've never seen like a female actor do uh, torture scenes uh, 
so well and mm-hmm. and and be so in control during them that you never feel like she's being victimized and that you know that she's ultimately going to come out on top of the situation. So I, I think she's a a powerful character, and she's also great at comedy. And she plays there. There's a <laughs> there's a scene um, in one of the episodes where she suspects that. Uh, this woman that, that they've picked up might oh, yes. not be who she thinks she is, and they uh, she takes the security officer to, you know, explore quarters, and she like knocks on the door and says housekeeping, <laughs> uh, and uh, that's just per- a perfect throwaway, you know, one liner. It, it's so funny, and it just kind of like uh, I thought showed off her attitude, mm-hmm. um, and I, I love the actor who plays uh, Bordis too. Uh, He's had, I think, some of the funniest lines and the funniest <laughs> moments in the series. Uh, I, I just think it's it's an amazing cast, mm-hmm. and uh, and Seth MacFarlane is, you know, he pulls off being a convincing commander and also uh, being, uh, you know, just a convincing regular guy, and he's a stand-in, you know, for the fans. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think that that's. Um, and uh, one of the things that I thought when I was going on the set, and I, and I apologize, I'm very long-winded, and uh, no, so if you ask me a question, I could, we'll give you a 10-minute t- answer. <laughs> but uh, when I was walking on the set, um, it, it's an amazing uh, – it's one of the most amazing uh, sets of this type I've ever seen because they literally built the first two decks of the spaceship. Hmm. And you go – it's completely self-enclosed, so you walk around inside and see all these quarters and corridors and the cafeteria. And then there, and at the center, there's a big spiral staircase you walk up, and you can go walk out onto the bridge from there. Hmm. But uh, – uh, one of the last things I saw when I was looking at this is that is the captain's kind of suite in his bedroom, which is right under the bridge. Mm-hmm. And there's a, like a little kind of staircase you walk up to to get on the bridge. And, and the minute I saw that, I kind of just it just sort of put the whole show in perspective as this kind of fantasy of, uh, <laughs> you know, that a fan a fan, because if you if you look at the show from that perspective, it's like, what you know, what would it be like if I got to command my own spaceship? I'd have, you know, my uh, my gorgeous ex-wife or girlfriend, you know, be my first officer. I'd have my best friend be my helmsman and have all sorts of crazy characters to interact with. Um, I'd have, you know, romances with <laughs> movie stars. And, and then, you know, I'd have uh, the world's greatest you know, apartment, bedroom, right underneath the bridge, you know, so I can just walk up and get into it. So, you know, I think that Seth MacFarlane, you know, is believable both as a guy who actually would be put in command of something like this and as uh, like a stand-in for, you know, any fan who wanted to imagine that they'd be put in that position. Yeah, and actually, I I see his character as sort of an anti-Kirk in a sense. He's He kind of, he doesn't lack for confidence, but he has self-doubts and i feel like he he's been the one who's been seduced you know he he's not the uh the the you know the romeo or the you know, yes you know. so yeah exactly yeah i thought that was interesting and um and the cast I, I just love the cast and i'm wondering was there did they do anything special to develop the cast because it must have taken quite an effort to get as you say, people who can do both dramedy and comedy and comedy, sorry, drama, comedy and, um, and action, you know, to some extent. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, my sense is that Seth MacFarlane, you know, he's had a lot of experience, uh, in, in show business. He's made these super popular, you know, kind of cult car animated shows and, and has been able to, uh, pull in a lot of celebrities who become fans uh, of, of those shows to do, you know, voices for them. And then he's gotten to make, you know, live action movies. Uh, so he's I think he's able to draw from, you know, both of those worlds and kind of his, his experience and people that he liked working with. And he also is, a you know, because he's a Star Trek fan, uh, you know, Penny Johnson, who plays the doctor, 
on the show as a character on Deep Space Nine. And he's, you know, had cast other Star Trek actors in, in cameos. He's used, uh, Star Trek directors and, and there's a, a, you know, Brandon Braga and David, uh, Goodman, who are producers and writers on the show, mm-hmm. are, you know, worked on, uh, Star Trek Next Generation and Enterprise, Deep Space Nine and, uh, they have people, their cinematographer, you know, worked on the, the Star Trek shows. Um, so a lot of the, he, a lot of the people behind the camera, are, I think, are people that Seth MacFarlane was familiar with because he's a, a fan of Star Trek and he wanted to bring that same uh, kind of visual strength and uh, you know the kind of clean futuristic look. Uh, he wanted the show to reflect that. So I think that, uh, you know, his familiarity with all these people kind of behind and in front of the camera, uh, helped him bring all those people onto the show. I love that he has Jonathan Frakes involved as well. That was, uh, I liked seeing that. Yeah, I got, I did get to talk to him briefly, uh, and I've, you know, I've met him before. He's a great guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, all the, the, the people, uh, who used to work on Star Trek uh, were very funny people. Yeah. Uh, and they got to always, you know, the Star Trek, even back to the original show, uh, it has always kind of been famous for their outtakes and, uh, pranks and jokes that they used to pull, uh, but those would not, for the most part, show up on screen. Um, but that, you know, humor was always a part of Star Trek that seemed like it, it was not able to get fully expressed because you can't kind of break the reality of, of Star Trek, mm-hmm. uh, up to a certain point. So I think mm-hmm. a lot of these people, you know, enjoy working in the Orville because it gets, they, it allows them to do some of the things that they couldn't get away with, uh, when they were working on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, let's talk about the book a bit. So. Uh, the blurb on the back says that uh, you discuss concept art, on-set photog- there's on-set photography, technical schematics, uh, production design costumes, makeup prosthetics, and visual effects. So how does the um, the book balance all these elements? Do you have something you really focus on or uh, tell me about it? Well, we, I, you know, I got to talk to all the people kind of in charge of these uh uh, different departments and that I sat down, you know, for a full day in one of their offices and they just kind of had everyone come in and talk to me and it was really, uh, it was really educational and fun. And a lot of what I talked, uh, with about these people or talked (laughs) to these people about was their own, you know, kind of background, and uh the fact that they were all fans of of this um so the, you know the book is i think balances it's a, it's somewhat of a making of um mm-hmm. and it's also it's not there's a little bit of a technical manual uh aspect to it because we show uh a lot of the props and uh the, the schematics you know the, for the ship um, and how they were developed and what they're supposed to do. I talked to, there's a, a woman who's, uh, there's a couple people who are really kind of science advisors and are in charge of try, kind of keeping the science, uh, consistent throughout the show. Uh, we, and so they were able to explain what different things uh did um and some of the like scientific concepts they had for the show mm-hmm. i remember uh you know one of the most interesting things i learned was that they they talked about the, the they had this kind of uh texture on the walls uh that you can see on the bridge and some of the other rooms in the ship and they kind of theorized that th- this was like a sort of like a living, uh, like plant-like material mm-hmm. that was constantly cl- like cleaning the air and, and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that there, uh, that if you looked at it, you'd be able to see these little kind of like nanite, like, uh, tiny machines constantly like grooming it or going through it and, and, and uh, growing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had, you know, strong kind of science concepts behind everything. So, uh, you know, we break down what 
the props and weapons and uh, devices are supposed to do in the reality of the show and then also look at the background of how they were designed and uh, kind of how the evolution the you know the the Orville itself went through lots and lots of uh, design iterations and some of the most you know famous uh, kind of science fiction movie concept designers uh, wound up working on on different versions of the ship I think Andrew Probert who designed the the Enterprise D and who worked on the the refit Enterprise for Star Trek the motion picture mm-hmm. did some versions of it Ryan Church w- did some um, so you can sort of see all the different versions of um, you know what the Orville might have been and mm-hmm. uh, you know I think the the Orville wound up being this like kind of super organic shape and i don't remember if anyone described it uh this way uh but but for for me looking at it what's ingenious about it is it looks kind of like the basic body looks like a whale Mm -hmm. and those uh kind of energy looping uh rings in the back are uh they they went through a number of versions of those and the the basic shape I think was actually just sketched by Seth MacFarlane that he wanted something that looked like this but it lo- the way they had those three rings positioned it's almost like uh the different uh positions of a whale's tail you know in the, in, yeah. in the process of swimming as if it's like beating up and down mm-hmm. so it gets this impression that it's in mo- it's alive and it's in motion even while it's just sitting there now, since the show does sort of mimic, um, or or the the union mimics sort of the navy, you know, with the ranks and stuff, they they don't happen to have a navy advisor on hand, do they? Or is that? Uh, no, but they, you know, I think between the the kind of science people and the and the experience of uh, <laughs> a lot of the people who've worked on different Star Trek shows, they have their own sense of uh, you know what the ranks are and departments uh, that that stuff was all ironed out and and they sort of know what everything is supposed to be and where it's supposed to be um but that's always uh, uh it, it's funny because the one of the big differences between um the original star trek and later star trek is that the original star trek was made by you know people who'd been in like World War II and the Korean War and mm-hmm. actually had real military experience and there's a little bit less of that in the, the later Star Trek shows um, so they're somewhat less military dramas but st- you know Star Trek itself sort of established its own reputation for how to do military drama in its early episodes so there's always an echo of that but it's I wouldn't say it's like hardcore you know mm-hmm. military uh, uh, not a hardcore military show show it's always like a paramilitary sort of thing so it's also interesting that you know the original series star trek you know it was a science ship and yet they seem to do a lot of fighting and stuff whereas in the orville again it's a science ship but it feels more like a science ship you know how the people act and, and the missions they go on and, and what goes on so i find find that interesting yeah, again, I think that's, uh, that seems like a reflection of, uh, sort of what they were doing on Star Trek The Next Generation, that they wanted to get a- away from, uh, it being such a military mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was even an uh, argument on the original Star Trek that, you know, I think they went back and forth. Um, and, and so that was something that Gene Roddenberry evolved on, uh, that, you know, he would tell you, I think he would tell you, you know, 10 years or after he did the original Star Trek that it wasn't military at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at it and you, you look at his experience uh, back then, um, there was a much stronger military feel. And he had, you know, done a whole show called The Lieutenant about, uh, you know, uh, people in the, in the armed forces. So that was was part of his experience. But he became, you know, much more of a pacifist as he got older. Of course, we're completely off of the Orville now. But uh, but again, I, I feel like that's the, that's the influence. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they, it's it's you know they, they talked a lot about how they wanted it to be utopian mm-hmm. and uh, to get away from you know some of the problems that we have now and, and show that those had been 
uh, solved. Um, but they they can have real conflict and interpersonal conflict uh, on the Orville, um, and that that's something that they've always ha- struggled with on on Star Trek uh, because you know Roddenberry's idea was that everyone had been perfected, that people had been perfected. I think that's one of the, the differences is the Orville. Um, it, it is an optimistic view of people, but it it um, it definitely shows you that people can still have the same foibles and and uh, problems that and that they're always going to have have issues like that, and, and they're not going to be you know uh, people who exist without conflict. Mm-hmm. Let me ask about the um, the design. Uh, you see in the Orville, you know, it's, it's kind of a bright show. There's, you know, on the ship, it's, you know, a lot of lights. And, um, I wonder how, does that, did you get the sense it makes it difficult for costuming and prosthetics, you know, with a brighter set, you might see any flaws easier or, you know, how, how do they balance that? And what kind of budget do they have for all Well, that? they have a, it, the show is an expensive show. Hmm. Uh, and if you look, if you just look at the sets, like I was talking about, uh, it, it's it looks more i i was on the deep space nine set the enterprise set the voyager set when those were being filmed mm-hmm. and the the Vo- the orville sets are much more impressive for one thing there's a big difference in technology and and how they're able to light those sets practically mm-hmm. uh so that they, you know the sets have built-in lighting they still obviously use stage lighting too but a they are able to control, um, you know, the lights can switch to, you know, red for like a red alert and, and light the whole set. And when you go onto the bridge, that w- the most amazing thing about the bridge is that that forward view screen, which is like this wrap around. It's not 180 degrees, but it's almost 180 degrees. So it's filling a lot of your vision if you're standing on that bridge. Mm-hmm. And they have something like an 8K or 11K uh, LED projector uh, that r- wraps around that view screen. Mm-hmm. And they project, they're able to project stars and planets and, you know, sp- space storms and all, all kinds of visual effects onto that. They don't, and it's, it's a tool for the actors. It's so the actors have an idea what they're reacting to. Mm-hmm. Um, they are able to actually, you know, it's very difficult to get, uh, an in-camera effect. So, you know, 99% of the time on a show like this, if you're looking at a view screen, that that is a composite. Um, so it's two different pieces of film. Mm -hmm. And it's still the case, uh, that they do that if they're doing a complex special effect, like a planet or something. But they have these in a library. And can project them, um, and the stars actually are strong enough uh, in terms of light that they can use that and actually film uh, without um, doing a composite. Um, if it's anything more complex, usually they're going to add it later. But the thing that I noticed that standing on the bridge is that it, it, it's, it gives you such a feeling of reality. Like if they you've, uh, they project. Um, like a planet that the ship's supposed to be orbiting around, I actually started to get dizzy because you feel like you are standing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles over a real planet uh, just because of the way it fills your frame of vision and and um, how powerful the LED, you know, uh, light effect is. Um, it is, uh, I think, a lot of things have changed about makeup um, and you know, high definition television and and is is a big uh, issue for uh, makeup people in terms of how you blend prosthetics uh, with skin. Uh, you know, they kind of switched over, I think, to from like brushes and and sponges to like a lot of times using airbrushes um, to create like finer kind of painting blends uh, and that you know happened an, a number of years ago but it's definitely more challenging and they i think they have to do thinner appliances and uh you know they have to do things that are going to hold up on a high definition uh television and it's more like um what you would have to do for a movie now mm-hmm. because everyone you know most people have a giant 
big screen television that's showing everything in high definition they can get a really good look at um mm-hmm. makeup effects like that but it yeah it is more challenging and and you know one of the things that they discussed uh, some of the early designs of uh the Orville and even the concept of the show was that you know going to be something more like a tramp steamer or something like alien where you might just have a small crew mm-hmm. and the sh- the ship would be smaller and it would be a, like a darker grittier look and you know Seth MacFarlane said that he didn't want to do that he wanted it to be a big ship he didn't want it to be you know people to feel like oh these are uh you know this is a a comedy crew and they're not as good at their jobs <laughs> um and so this is the only kind of ship they could get he wanted uh you to feel like these people were all competent professionals and that they could maybe not command the greatest ship in the fleet because that you can see one of the things we have in the book and that i think they show at some point in the show is like a diagram of all the different class ships in the union fleet and the the orville is like a mid-sized ship uh, there's some that are smaller uh, and there are a number that are very very large um and so you know the idea is that ed can't command the best ship in the fleet but he can still command a good ship in the fleet mm-hmm. Do you know how long uh, Boris's uh, makeup takes to put on? Is it a tough process? Uh, I'm sure. I, I, you know, I don't know for sure, but anything like that, and it depends. You know, there's a episode, you know, where he's laying an egg, mm-hmm. and it's a full body <laughs> yeah. makeup. That something like that, it, you know, is I would assume is going to take a bit at minimum four hours, if not longer, mm-hmm. to put on. Um, but you know, on anything like this, normally, I, I, I would think that they would get it down to two or three hours, um, just to so you can shoot. But but you know, certainly any character like that is going to be in makeup. Uh, for a large part of their morning, and you don't have to come in way before anybody else. Mm-hmm. Do they use the uh, standard number of cameras, or is there anything different on set for the show that you noticed, maybe? Well, th- like I said, the only real uh, kind of technical difference was in the amount of control that they have on, over the lighting on the, the actual Orville ship set hmm. that it, it's all rigged with, you know, practical uh, LED lights and they can control it like from a panel hmm. um, and quickly, you know, change their lighting scheme uh, to be what they want it to be. But but then you also have, uh, you know, Herman Rush, the cinematographer, uh, you know, as great amount of experience doing previous space shows and he's able to you know get in with his own type of lighting for the specific situations but you know it's it's a it's a one camera show in turn you know the diff that's the difference between like a shooting a sitcom in front of a live audience is like a two or three camera show where you're running all those cameras uh, to catch everything um I think for the most part, you're usually using one camera. You might, if you're filming an action scene, you might have multiple cameras to pick up action or stunt work. But for the most part, you know, this is filmed like any drama would be filmed. So, um, what, uh, what did you find that was most surprising when you were speaking to the, uh, the production people? Uh, that's a good question. I think that, you know, th- I, I was, Initially, probably the um, idea that this was not going to be Galaxy Quest, mm-hmm. um, and that that the, the people you know on the show were not a fan of Galaxy Quest, um, but uh, f- you know I I I, I just thought the, the degree to uh, the amount of thought that they put into the show mm-hmm. I, I thought was was fascinating and that 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 they were they wanted to take this world very seriously and you know create a real believable universe with its own rules and then have comedy around the edges and 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 be able to tell you know serious dramatic stories in addition to you know allowing more comedy in, in than you would normally see in a space show 
Do you know how the uh, what the writing process um, was for the for the episodes? Do you know what who who Seth MacFarlane brought in uh, to work with him? Yeah, uh, uh, Brandon Braga uh, from uh, you know who was a producer and writer. Uh, I think starting on the fifth year of Star Trek: Next Generation, and who was involved in um, all the you know subsequent Star Trek shows uh is a producer and writer and director on this show uh and david goodman uh is the guy who had worked with seth on uh some of his animated shows and had, whose background is more comedy but he's also a huge star trek fan and is, he's written books on star trek mm-hmm. and he's uh you know an, another one of the key uh creative minds behind the show mm-hmm. and then they have you know a, a lot of writers some of whom have worked with you know seth mcfarland on his animated shows and some from other uh you know more serious uh backgrounds uh mm-hmm. but that you know they are all very serious um science fiction fans okay. and so i think they all approach the show from that background first and then kind of bring the, the comedy i i i think i i don't think any any script for the show has come up, has been invented with the idea of like, wouldn't it be funny if we did this? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more like, you know, the, what, here's an idea we want to explore. Um, and then what, what, you know, how would people really behave or, uh, you know, what might be funny to come out of that? But the, the, they're going to approach the ba- basic idea m- more seriously as a science fiction idea first. Yeah, I was, I've been impressed by the, the science fiction ideas they explored. So I just wondered if that was, you know, from, from Seth's mind or if he had other people who, uh, who were helping. Uh, well, they have, uh, science advisors. Um, Andre Bermanis, um, is another producer on the show and, uh, writer. And he's, you know, started off as a science advisor on uh star trek uh the next generation um and and those shows uh and uh he's uh, you know he's the one that i would go to to have you know them explain uh well how does this you know how does this weapon work how, what, how does the drive on the orville work um so he's there to uh you know make the science on the show consistent and to, and to bring his own creative ideas to the show that you know I, I would say uh, not to bring Star Trek into it again but I wish that uh, uh, Star Trek Discovery had a science advisor on it uh, they, I, I assume that they don't and the, um, that's one, been one th- frustrating thing about the show uh, and I, I'm not um you know, against the show, I like a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's kind of strange now that the science on the Orville, which is ostensibly a comedy show, I, I think is a little more thought out than what you get on S- Star Trek currently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, I like both, but yeah, Orville, the Orville uh, feels more, um, yeah, more more of what I want out of Star Trek. Yeah, I think that, and that's, I, I think that is a key to uh, a lot of the Orville success is that a lot of people and I was seeing, you know, before both shows went on the air, I was already seeing people say, oh, I'm going to like the Orville more than Discovery because it, it, people didn't a lot of people didn't like the idea that discovery was going to be maybe a darker show or more violent and and uh maybe not as uh, bright and optimistic as the star trek that they were used to even though there's been you know if you look at deep space nine and uh or specific episodes of some of the other later shows they all have their dark edges uh but i think people wanted to see um just a consistently uh, more utopian, optimistic show. And they, you know, Seth MacFarlane and the people behind the Orville were very smart about kind of sensing, uh, that that was what people would be looking for at this period in time. And definitely I see, um, more, I see the Orville seems to really be reaching out to a younger audience. Um, like that, what is it? Cupid's, um, Cupid's, 
I forget the exact title. That one, I was, I was really pleasantly surprised at, at sort of the twists and turns it took. You know, it wasn't afraid yep. to, to go places. Yeah, that's a that, great, that's a great episode. Yeah. Cupid, it's a Cupid's arrow, I think. Uh, yeah, that's, that, yeah, there's some really fun, uh, stuff in that episode and and they can do you know that that's uh, an episode that's you know more of an all-out comedy although it still has some you know serious moments and serious things to say Mm -hmm. but yeah they've got license i think to do everything from a you know very broad uh comedy like that to something that's you know more of an action episode or suspense or you know more of a philosophical drama yeah I like how they, the, the alien races, they really look at, um, you know, what would it really be like to interact with, with another species that, that just thought, behaved just very differently from humans. But for them, it's matter of fact, and humans are just like, you know, gobsmacked by, by what they see. Um, so I think that stuff is cool too. Yeah, that, and that's, you know, that's always was a part of the best Star Trek and that just the best science fiction, uh, looking at how, you know, things can be viewed differently from a, from a different perspective. Did you get the impression, um, was there any thought of how, how many seasons they really hope to or expect to go with the Orville? Um, well, they were talking about doing a second season, um, at least by the end of, uh, filming for the first season uh, you know i don't think that they had any idea how the show was going to be received and it's funny because initially that you know it got very poor reviews for the most part uh, based on the pilot um and then wound up you know doing very well uh, in ratings because of football uh on sunday nights and they, they moved it to thursday and i think uh you know, there was a sense that that might be a disaster and that ratings went down, uh, initially, but then they came right back and they wound up having the same kind of ratings that they were getting, you know, with the, you know, lead in from, uh, Sunday football, which is really amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I think, uh, you know, and it, it, they got announced fairly, you know, not too far, maybe halfway through the season they got a pickup um and it you know it was like i said there was a i think there was some a little bit of uncertainty when they initially launched and and during the move to thursday but for the most part i think the show really outperformed what people thought it was going to do so that they definitely had some plans and that's i'm going to be very interested in because there's one character in particular that they had a plan for uh, what what they were going to do with them in season two, and I'd love to see them actually do it. Uh, and I'm going to be looking forward to seeing if that happens. And I can't tell you what it is. So. <laughs> no, that's that's fine. Um, when you were there, when you were talking to everyone and, and observing, did you expect? Did you think you were watching a, a show that would win the Saturn Award in its first season? Uh, I didn't. I mean, it was very clear that a lot of money and a lot of care was being put into it and that it was being, you know, made by people, uh, who love the genre. I mean, Howard Berger, who does the, the, uh, makeup effects and creates the creatures for the show is a, as a huge, you know, fan. And he did the show, you know, he, he'd been working on the walking dead, which is a guaranteed job if there ever is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he did the, the Orville because he liked creating aliens and, and, and creatures and, and, and doing, you know, exactly the kind of designs that he's doing on, on that show. So, uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, I can't speak for this, Saturn Awards or, or what the Saturn Awards do, but, but I, I had confident that it was going to be a, a well produced, uh, and well executed show. Mm-hmm. All right. So, uh, it, it, are there any, um, last things you want to say about the book? I know we've gone, um, all over the place. It, I had a lot of fun writing it and, uh, I'm a big fan of the show. I love the, the, co- the cover. <laughs> it's my favorite book cover of any that I've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause it's so clean. Um, and I, there's a book by, um, David Gerald about the original Star Trek called The World of Star Trek. And, 
we this book was originally going to be called you know the art and making of the Orville or the art of the Orville and uh, the, the I think Jason Clark is one of the producers on the show who you know was kind of overseeing me working on the book wasn't a huge fan of that title and I had always wanted to call it the world of the Orville because uh, I, I wanted to do an homage to this David Gerald book, and uh, they they I when they said that they weren't sure about the title, I said, well, how about this? You know, this is another idea I had. What do you think of this? And they like that. So uh, it's the probably the only time you know in, in terms of working for another publisher that I got to actually come up with a real title mm-hmm. for the book. So that uh, that was kind of exciting for me. Uh, but yeah, I'm a big fan of the show. It was a, a huge honor to be able to do, uh, this book. And it, it is very challenging to write anything like this for uh, anything that's in production because there's a lot of eyes on it. I actually mm-hmm. just sort of went <laughs> through this on another Orville related project, uh, and it, it is very, very difficult. I was very lucky on, on the book, um, because uh, people care a lot when when uh, <laughs> when their show is in production. I do a lot of you know, I work on um, uh, soundtrack albums and a lot of things that are uh, that deal with movie and and television shows that are out of production that have you know maybe are ten or mm-hmm. twenty or thirty years old, and those are much easier to do because either everyone's dead or they've all moved on and they don't really <laughs> care so much about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But it's very difficult to work on a project uh, when uh, it's in production because there's a lot of eyes on it. And I got a lot of great support from uh, the, the Orville people. They could not have been more helpful and uh, supportive. I was going to, since you mentioned the art, I, I wanted to mention that, um, Usually with a TV show, when the credits roll, you know, they have the, the intro piece. Um, usually, you know, I see it once and then, okay, I don't need to see it again. But every time, um, the Orville one runs, I, I wanted to watch the whole thing. Just, you know, I'm a nerd for space images and spaceships. So. Oh, you mean the, the credit sequence? The, the credits, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, uh, and that's unusual too to have a full length credit sequence. Now you, uh, credit sequences are like five seconds long. Hmm. Um, so that, yeah, that, you know, that the show has great music, mm-hmm. uh, and fantastic visual effects. Uh, I remember, you know, I used to watch, I was the same way with Star Trek Voyager, you know, had a, this great theme by Jerry Goldsmith, and they had, the, it, at the time, it was probably the most beautifully designed, uh, main title sequence ever put on television. And I think that the Orville is, is very much like that. It's a lot of, you know, wonderful beauty shots of the ship and, you know, great music. So it's, uh, it's a, a pleasure to watch. And I, I do the same thing. I watch the credits at the beginning of every show. I should also mention, um, you know, I just want to mention that I'm, very grateful to Titan uh, Books for letting me work on these. Uh, I've, I've done a lot of really fun projects with them, and uh, they're almost all things that I would have r- written about on my own if I was just a fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's great to be able to do that um, and get paid for it. Oh yeah, I love seeing that this book is out. Um, and, and I'll add, sorry, I'm, I'm I keep mentioning new things. Um, you mentioned the music. I really love the musical touch that I think it's Seth's touch, you know, the, the sort of the, you know, the, yeah. the music they add uh, to the. Yeah, Seth is, uh, I mean, he's a musician and a singer. He's very interested in music and he definitely is very hands on uh, from everything that I've heard about, uh, you know, guiding the composers on the show to do what he wants them to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I love his work, but, you know, when I heard he's going to do sci-fi, I said, hmm, this will be interesting, and, and I feel like he's hitting it out of the park. So I really yeah, am he, impressed. You know, another thing that kind of led to this show was him doing Cosmos, with, uh, and he did that with Brandon Braga. Hmm. Uh, so, that you know, that was, a, for the most part, very serious, you know, fact-based 
documentary type show and it you know he did that was a real labor of love for him uh and that i think demonstrated you know at least his his great love of of science and so you can see that kind of uh extending to the orville that he you know he is a hardcore fan of science fiction and takes it very seriously yeah i'm definitely looking forward to the second second season and more hopefully me too yep um so that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Uh, no, but it's listen. It's a pleasure uh, to talk about this. And uh, as I explained at the beginning, I'm, you know, I'm I grew up on on shows like this. I'm going to watch any show with a spaceship. Uh, but uh, they're not always great. But or- Orville is always a very entertaining, fun show to watch. All right. Well, uh, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. Your visits help support this podcast. Please remember that my first name, Chris, does not have an H in it. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.